It's February 1981. In this episode, we flip through our usual magazines, Compute and Creative Computing, but also add a new title to our library, Softside Magazine. The game review is of Jawbreaker by John Harris and distributed by Online Systems, later to become Sierra Online. Also, we'll discuss the potential to add more magazines to the library, get into the legal battles over Pac-Man and Jawbreaker, and a summary of my visit to the 2014 Portland Retro Gaming Expo. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for Episode 5. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm doing a chronological summary of the magazines and games that were available starting from the time the Atari was released until as far as I can go. So we'll see how far it actually goes. I'm not focusing on collecting or any of the current events that might be going on with the uh, Ataris. At some point, I do hope to cover homebrew games and maybe software that that people are writing currently, but definitely not going to focus on the collecting. I'm not really a collector, and I just, I wouldn't even know what to talk about. So I'll let Antic talk about that. However, I did go to the Portland Retro Gaming Expo this past month, and I will talk a little bit about that. Last episode, episode four, I had an interview with Mike DeShane of Analog Computing, and I got a lot of nice feedback saying they really enjoyed the interview, and I had a great time talking with Mike. It was a a lot of fun. Analog was a big part of my Atari experience, and it was a real thrill to talk to him. You know, this one of the guys who was really behind the magazine. Um, I'm hoping to do more interviews. I have a, a few leads out there. I don't have an interview for this episode, but I'm definitely trying to track more people down and get them to talk about Atari 8-bit stuff. So if you guys have any favorite authors that you'd like me to talk to, um, game programmers, authors of magazines, articles, books, let me know, especially if you have any contact info for for them. Because it is one of the challenges tracking down uh, people, tracking down their, their current whereabouts, you know, discovering if they're even interested in doing interviews. The guys on Antic have a such a backlog of interviews that they had a couple just interview-only episodes. I also like the televisionaries. They're doing a lot of great interviews over there, so if you haven't listened to that podcast, you should give that a shot. Even if you don't know much about the Intellivision, like I don't. Although, I did get a special introductory lesson on the Intellivision that I will talk about during the the Portland Retro Gaming Expo section. I did get some feedback about last episode. Like I said, a lot of people had mentioned that they liked the interview, and so it was a it was a great time talking to Mike. CGO Apps on Twitter, in addition to saying they enjoyed the interview, talked about a program called uh, SoundFinder, which he said he used a lot to generate sounds and stuff. So I looked around and I found it in the Atari Connection magazine. The uh, 1982 Volume 2 issue, and I'll talk about that more when we get to the 1982 section of the podcast, but it uses a joystick, and you use, sort of move a dot around, and you, it's like a two-dimensional field where you can generate sounds, where you control the, the two major parameters of the sounds, the distortion and the pitch. A friend of the show, Rick, sent me an email, said, uh, just want to let you know how much I enjoyed the latest podcast with Mike Deshane. It was really interesting to hear how he and Lee Pappas developed analog and made it a staple in the Atari 8-bit days. I do remember meeting Mike one day when I went to analog offices after being asked to illustrate some covers for ST-Log. Uh, in the interview, when Mike mentioned the model of the ST computer they'd made, I remember seeing a model of the ST mouse that was almost a perfect replica. And I never knew it was why it was there until all these years later. So it's funny the things that your brain stores away. I also remember the office being in this uh, really nice, quaint house with a total contrast to the high-tech subject matter that was going on inside. I was introduced to Mike, but as he suggested in the interview, it was... He was quiet and busy, leaving the introductions and the tour to others in the office. It's great to hear how he swapped one passion for another and now, now makes a living uh, with a hobby shop. Great podcast as usual, Rob. Looking forward to the next one. Well, thanks, Rick. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to hear about the analog offices. You know, I didn't really know it was, they ran out of the house. and It would have been fun just to be a fly on the wall and see all the stuff as they developed the magazines and you know, how they laid out those storyboards. And Mike was talking about how they put all the the issues up, they sort of pasted them up on these cardboard 
these large cardboard panels and, and for the photo typesetting process that they used and how they would pass around the issues yeah, for everybody to proofread. Yeah, I really wonder if the people that worked there at that time really understood that they had a dream job that a lot of people would have traded for. I'm sure they did. It's just it's such a special time to get in the ground floor of an industry like that. Something in sort of recent times, maybe the, you know, the very initial iPhone app developers kind of felt like, you know, they got on the ground floor of something. That's some more feedback from another listener, Kevin. He said, excellent podcast. Very well done. I'm an avid Atari collector and user. I got my first 800 in late 79 or early 80. Came in a brown box and had 16K, and I've been using Ataris ever since. There is one major magazine that you're missing in your reviews. It is Softside Magazine. It started in 1978 and covered Atari from uh, mid-1980. as articles and program listings. If you're going to review the major magazines in the U.S. that covered Atari 8-bits, then this is a must-have. Please consider adding this very well-done magazine to your podcast. Keep up the good work. I'll be listening. Thanks, Kevin. I actually never heard of Softside, or if I did, it didn't make much of an impression on me because I started, you know, I didn't get my first Atari till 83, and Softside only had another year or so. I was really only aware of Antic and Analog in terms of uh, Atari-specific magazines. Well, I guess Softside wasn't an Atari-specific magazine, but it, to me, didn't crack the my top four, which were Antic, Analog, Creative Computing, and Compute. But I appreciate the suggestion, and I will start covering Softside starting with this very episode. I also want to thank Kevin because he sent me a complete archive of all the type-in programs from the whole run of the magazine, and I'll definitely cover more type-in programs, if, especially if I don't, you know, actually have to type them in. As a special section to the podcast, I'm going to talk about the Portland Retro Gaming Expo that I went to October, was it 18th and 19th this year, 2014? I had a business trip in Seattle and I was able to stop in Portland on my way up. I flew in early Saturday morning and because I wanted to, there was a talk, or actually two talks in the morning that I wanted to get to. One was by Howard Scott Warshaw and another was a panel of Atari 2600 programmers, David Crane, Gary Kitchen, and Bob Smith. So I flew in early, drove to the uh, expo, which is at the Portland Convention Center, parked at the parking garage, and got to the main section of the convention center and discovered that it was about a 10-minute walk to the other side of the convention center. This is a huge place. It seemed like it was about three city blocks long. So it was a bit of a a walk to the the far other side of the convention center where they were hosting the, the Retro Gaming Expo. There was a I think it was a coffee show in town, and uh, I think it was a Christmas card convention at the same time. So we had to pass all those conferences before we got to the Retro Gaming Expo. And I thought I got there early. I, I got the early weekend pass, so I was supposed to get in an hour early. But as it turns out, there was a, a line of probably, I would say, four or 500 people already there. And this was at probably 9.15. The early access, I think, was from 9 to 10. And so I thought I'd get there, you know, in plenty of time to walk in. But there was a big line of people. And it was very slowly moving. So you had to go down some steps, then you turn a corner, and there's a huge longer line still waiting in the wings. So, yeah, I got in there about 9.45. So for my early access, I got about 15 minutes. As I waited in line, I saw a bunch of cosplayers dressed up as Master Chief from Halo. I'm like, really? Is Halo retro now? Yeah, I guess I'm so old. But then you get in the actual room, and there was a bunch of arcade games on the side, right as you as you walk in there. There was an arcade section on the on the right, and then the rest of the area, probably three quarters of the space on the left, there were tables, tables and tables and tables. All these vendors selling their retro gaming stuff. So once I got in, I made a beeline right for the arcade games, and they had a Almost 100 arcade games, I would say. They had a good selection of vector games. One of my favorites was Major Havoc, which I'd never played. And, of course, I heard the review on uh, No Quarter, and they both really liked it. It's interesting. It's got a... It's like a 1D trackball, which doesn't make a lot of sense. It's really a like a slider, but it's, well, it's like... It's a cylinder that's mounted with the axis parallel to the control panel. So you spin it either left or right. But that was great. It was, it was pretty hard. It was a fun game, though. They had one of my favorites, Spy Hunter, which you can't really do well in MAME. So all the machines were set to free play, except for Spy Hunter. I don't know why they, if that's just not available, but so they occasionally have, would have to come by, the operator would come by and open the coin door and just hit the credit button a bunch of times to get like, you know, 99 credits. And it would actually pretty quickly go down because it was a pretty popular game. So a bunch of times I stopped to play Spy Hunter and it wasn't, there were no credits available, so you'd have to wait until 
the guy came back and gave me more credits. And then I found Tron, which is probably the game I was best at as a kid. And it's funny because I couldn't remember the pattern. I sort of remember the patterns a little bit, but not quite right. And so I'd get blasted, especially on like light cycles. And it took me a, a while to remember how to, to do the tanks because there was a little strategy about the tanks where you sort of drive almost into the little center diamond thing and kind of camp out. And if a tank gets too close, you'd pop into that and it warps you to some other part of the tank maze. It took me a few games to remember that. And the MCP and the grid bugs don't really have that much of a pattern, but some of and they do get fast enough where you have to know which direction the MCP is going to go, um, stuff like that. So I ended up getting like the sixth high score, like 24,000 or something. And uh, then I returned on Sunday after that, and they apparently reset the machine. So I ended up setting the high score there of like 38,000, which again is not great, certainly by any means. But um, I don't know, it's just kind of fun to say, hey, I got a high score on a game. Oh, uh, they had a game I'd never seen before. They had the Donkey Kong Pauline edition, which is really cool. Uh, Donkey Kong is hard and I'm terrible at it, but it was fun just to play the Pauline edition. So I guess the Pauline edition started with the NES. A guy was playing Donkey Kong with his daughter on any on the NES and he or the the daughter asked, "Well, why can't she play as the girl in the game?" And he thought, "Oh, that's a good idea." Why? So he went into the NES ROMs and changed it so that you the main character was then Pauline and you were rescuing Mario. Well, and another guy took the main ROM and did the same thing. So this is the full arcade game, playing as Pauline, where you rescue Mario. That's super fun, and the game plays the same, it's just they changed the graphics. A game that Mike and Kerry can talk about that they really liked, and I'd never seen in the arcade, was Mappy. And had a great cabinet. It was a an, sort of an extra tall marquee, was probably an extra foot high, so the, the lettering and the light behind the marquee was like very obvious standing up on top of the higher than all the other cabinets. And it was a fun game, too. It took me a while to figure it out where you're this little mounts, mouse and you bounce on trampolines to jump up to different levels. Another game they talked about, uh, Rampart. That was tough. It's kind of this combination of uh, a battle game where you're launching these cannons to blow up ships, and then once the wave is over, you have this little Tetris game that you have to play to match these pieces to build your castle back up. The trackball sensitivity was very, was, wasn't very was very good, so you had to move the trackball a lot to get it to to move the pieces around. And I just... They don't give you very much time to get your pieces to to match up because you got to enclose your castle with all these Tetris pieces. And yeah, that was tough. That w- I would definitely play that that game some more. But that that didn't come out till I think it was a 1990 game, maybe. So I never saw it in the arcades at all. There's a few other games I remember seeing. Uh, one was a really bad game called Frontline, and it was terrible graphics and kind of bad controls and stuff. But I remember playing it a lot. I it just totally slipped my mind, and I never would have been able to pick pick it out had I not seen it again I mean I would I would not have recalled it had you asked me unless I but I saw it there and it's you're sort of this little army guy kind of walking north on the screen and you've got this little clicky spinner it's not like a tempest spinner it's like something that's like an eight position spinner maybe that controls the direction that you're shooting really kind of slapdash graphics and not a very good game but I had totally spaced it all I had totally forgotten about it like wiped it from my mind and then I saw it again I was like oh yes I remember dumping tons of quarters into this for some reason so I had all sorts of stuff, and uh, I had Tempest, Asteroids, Missile Command, Gravatar, that was tough. Kicks, Defender and Robotron, all those tough Williams games, Galaga. So I took a little walkthrough video on Sunday that I'll post to YouTube, and I might play some audio at the end of the podcast. But that's probably the place, that's probably where I had the most fun at the at the expo. The most modern game I played was a game called APB, which was a you're kind of driving this little cop car around. And that was it. Was pretty fun. You're chasing people, pulling people over, and you get bonuses for stopping at the donut shop, which I never found. Oh, they had uh, Mike Magnus' uh, second favorite game, I think, Elevator Action. And I think the only thing better would, if they would have had Congo Bongo, but they didn't have that one. They, did, they had a couple of multi Williams and a couple of main machines. They had a computer space cabinet, not the game, just the cabinet, which was a really interesting fiberglass sort of amorphous thing. Yeah, if you've never seen a computer space cabinet, you should look that up. That was, the, I think, the first game that Nolan Bushnell did. They had Miss Pac-Man there, of course. Uh, you know, it's ubiquitous. And I don't really like Pac-Man games, which is, yeah, I've never really been any good at Pac-Man games, but I was, I don't know, just on fire this one game, and I got like 58,400, which is the by, by far the best score I've ever gotten on Miss Pac-Man. I got, I don't know, I must have got through 10 or 12 boards or something. And then I, uh, so I, so I took a screenshot of that just because I was 
I don't know, pleased with that score, even though I'm sure, you know, it's, it's not a great score by anybody who's really good at Pac-Man. But it got me interested enough. I was having fun. That was like the first time I really had fun playing Pac-Man. The first time, first time I thought I wasn't just getting destroyed. I don't know why. And then I found a Miss Pac-Man fact uh, that I'll link to in the show notes. It kind of talks about some of the strategies and, and the, the ghosts reverse after five seconds and then 20 seconds. You know, just little tips that I never would have figured out on my own just because I'm not that dedicated. But I think I might play it some more. And it's going to kind of course kind of related to this the game that i'm going to review in this episode which is jawbreaker one of the fun things when the machine went down is they put the wreck it ralph out of order sign on it one of the things that i didn't remember about arcades and it's funny how just some of these little details just slip your mind there was so much play on their arcade games that the panel the control panels would be warm from the from the heat transfer from people's hands yeah that was an effect i'd forgotten about so I spent by far the most time in the arcade area because the rest of the area was was huge. It was, but it was a lot of people selling stuff, you know, collectors. And you know, I'm not a collector. I looked around for Atari 8-bit stuff, though. They had a well before the collector area. I guess there was a big, there's sort of a section in the center that had uh, consoles set up, and it was a lot of NES, Super NES, Nintendo 64, Sega, you know, all of, all that kind of stuff. But I'm not an expert on the consoles at all, so. Uh, yeah, let's just say they had a bunch of consoles. They, they did have several 2600s. I, they had a 7800, uh, a couple 50, 5200s. But yeah, there was no 8-bit machine. Well, actually, there was an Atari 400 set up, but it was not working. And that was the only real 8-bit machine they had there in the console area. They had a couple of very... They had a couple of contests going on. There was a Tetris contest, I think, on... I forget what platform. And they had a couple other contest, contests, but they had kind of a a section with a couple of big TVs and couches set up and 2600 plugged in. So there were people kind of kicking back and playing Pac-Man and Space Invaders and stuff on the 2600s. The bulk of the area was devoted to the cellars where they had their booth set up and they had, um, gosh, lots of stuff. There was lots of you know cartridges, machines, parts. I met Sal, one of the guys behind the Space Harrier port for to the 8-bits. I guess they also did a Venture and Tempest, a Tempest port to the 8-bits. They also repaired computers and stuff. So we chatted for a while about Atari 8-bit stuff. Uh, they had a nice selection of 600XLs and 800XLs for sale. And uh, had I had my 1200XL there, he said he could have fixed it there. He said the uh, when I described the problem that it, wasn't, it wouldn't turn on, he said it was probably uh, something, I think, I don't know, bridge rectifier circuit or... For all I know, it could be the Fetzer valve, and you just need some 3-in-1 oil and some ball bearings to, to fix it up. But I think it was bridge rectifier circuit that he said. I know, he said it was a pretty easy fix. So, yeah, had I had my 1200 with me, I certainly would have let him fix it. But, yeah, it was fun talking some 8-bit stuff for a while. They, you know, the majority of it, there were some 2600 people, and there were, there were several 2600 homebrews, actually. I talked to, I think, three people that did some 2600 homebrews, and a couple of them didn't know who Ferg was. So I thought that was interesting. Oh, what else? What else? Oh, I met Keith Robinson of the of Intellivision Productions. I went to his talk. He had a talk. I think it was like five o'clock on Saturday. Went to his talk, and then Sunday, when I went walking around the floor some more, went over and checked out the Intellivision flashback that they had. It's like sixty games all built into this little. You know, it emulates the Intellivision hardware, but apparently the controllers are really good. I, you know, I never played in television growing up. In fact, this was my very first time in playing in television. So Keith handed me the controller and set it up for Astro Smash and played it for a little bit. I remembered the Thin Ice episode from the Intellivisionaries. So I asked him to put Thin Ice on and I played that. And that was, a, that's a tough game. That's just skating around your little penguin. It's hard for me to control for a while. But having Keith right there, you know, how many people can say they got to play their very first Intellivision game with the controller handed to him by Keith Robinson? I feel privileged. The other two talks I went to, I went to um, Howard Scott Warshaw's talk where he kind of went over his history and he was very self-deprecating about the whole E.T. thing. But you know, objectively, E.T. is definitely not the worst game on the 2600 as, you know, Ferg has has had to go cover some real dogs of that platform. And E.T. is not the worst. Uh, it's certainly not the best, but it's not the worst. There's a video, somebody took a video of his talk and so I'll link to that on YouTube. The other talk I really wanted to go to was the one with David Crane, Gary Kitchen, and Bob Smith talking about their time developing games for the 2600. And as it turns out, um, 
Rob Zadibble and Todd Fry were also there, so it was a panel of five people. And that was a few too many people on the panel, I think. A little too much with with sort of no agenda to talk about, just sort of fielding questions. You'd end up getting kind of sidetracked on topics. And A talk I really would have liked to have heard was one that was in the 2013 Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which was by Joe DeCure, where he talked about the development of the 8-bit system. And I'll link to that. Uh, there's a YouTube video. And that's a that's a great talk. I I really recommend you listening to that if you're uh, if you're listening to this podcast. You probably you'll definitely be interested in what he had to say. He also mentioned that he's writing a book, which sort of sounds like a racing the beam kind of effort, except for the eight uh, bits. So I'm really hoping that book comes out at some point. Let's see what else. What else? What else? Uh, yeah, since I'm really not much of a collector, if you're kind of interested in the collecting stuff, there's a a couple YouTube videos I'll link to of um, a guy who kind of talks about his collecting um, pickups and stuff from the from the show. So I'll link to that. Um, all in all, I I had a good time. I sort of in the middle of it, I was thinking, well, this is probably not the show for me because it was just so geared towards collecting, and they didn't really have a lot of eight bit stuff. I would have loved to talk you know, to more eight bit people. But after after leaving and. I had a great time playing all the arcade games. So for me, it was, this show was really all about the arcade games. And what I sh- what I didn't do, and what I should have done, was played every single arcade game. And I didn't. I I played a couple that I hadn't played before, but mostly because I heard about it from No Quarter. But I should have taken some time to play every single arcade game. I think that would have been um, a worthwhile experience. I think maybe my stamp on the games there was playing on that multi Williams. I played. Bubbles, which was another game from No Quarter that they didn't really like. So there was there were no scores on the high score table for Bubbles, because I'm sure everybody just skipped over that game. So I played it, got a score, got the top score on a game, and changed the multi-williams to some other game. So maybe my legacy of this show is that I have the high score on some multi-williams machine that will never be beaten because nobody wants to play Bubbles. So that's my takeaway from the Portland Retro Gaming Expo of 2014. Let's get back to the regularly scheduled section of the podcast. Let's talk about some magazines. So it being February 1981, we'll talk about Compute Issue Number 9. The cover is a ticker tape uh, with messages on the Atari, um, graphics of a stock ticker and things staying like, uh, Atari does it again, dot, dot, dot. And it's still with a subtitle of um, OSI, Sim, Kim, AIM. And I didn't know sort of what these, these are like the, um, single board machines. I didn't know much about them. So I found a new podcast that's called The History of Personal Computing. They're going chronologically, starting from the earliest personal computing things. And so they, but they, they had an episode talking about the Kim one and the, uh, it was the OSI Superboard. So I'll put a link to their podcast and, um, a few other links about the background for the, for the Kim and the, the OSI machines. So in the editor's note for this issue, they say there are too few Ataris, which is such a problem. We've been saying the Atari sales are picking up, uh, more than gradual creep that's been evidenced since summer, and the trickle is apparently turning into a roar. It seems like the pipeline effectively ran dry mid-December. Dealers were selling machines uh, faster than they could get them, which of course translates into not selling machines, since many dealers were unable to obtain enough. So we've heard from some who said they could have sold many more given sufficient supply. But don't give up. I suspect Atari corporate won't get caught short again. There's another little blurb about Jack Trammell, uh, the International Commodore, it says. It says, uh, Jack Trammell has stepped out of the position of president and become vice chairman of the board of directors and CEO. It says, we suspect Jack's skills will be more directed to the long-range growth of the company and less day-to-day. In short, it looks like a logical progressive step in the growth of the company. So what is this? this is 81. So Trammell puts out the VIC-20, the Commodore 64, and then leaves the company to pounce on Atari when Atari has its issues in 84. So Atari people, Jack is on his way, for good or bad. We'll talk about that much more as we get further along. There's a review of the Atari 825 printer, which is a rebadged Centronics 737 printer, which I don't recall really, but apparently was a sort of common printer of the day. It needs the 850 interface, and in the article it talks about terms you just don't see anymore, like CPI, characters per inch, and how they're only, there are what, three fonts built in? There's a monospaced 
a condensed and a proportional character set. And they talk about the relative densities of each, like normal is 10 characters per inch, the monospace is 16.7, and the proportional averages to about 14 characters per inch. There are 96 characters in the font, and you could backspace to print special characters. But I guess in this case, it, in this printer, it meant resetting the character turn, so the, so the printer head would go all the back back to the left and then space out to where it would be, and then you could print again the next, the, like the overwritten character that you wanted. So this will show you how old you are. Do you remember the, the fan fold paper with all those little perfs on the sides that you have to like rip off? Yep, I remember those. There's an ad for a combination Daisy Wheel, uh, Daisy Wheel printer, and typewriter. Daisy Wheel printers are a, a, a relic, best forgotten. Boy, those were slow. But a combination Daisy Wheel printer and typewriter at the time would probably be really useful. Looks like an Atari 800. With 16k costs about seven seven seventy five, seven seventy five at this point. 16k memory is about 120 bucks, and 32k is 200 bucks. Oh, there's a continuing series on. Last time I talked about the R&D function. There's a, there's another article that can sort of continues to talk about that. In the Atari Gazette this time, there's a the type in program for uh, the ticker tape messages that they kind of alluded to on the cover. It's a simple, basic program, and I don't know if you remember the early days of the web, but there was this marquee command from uh, HTML. I don't know if that was Internet Explorer specific. It was where the text would march across, you know, like the ticker taper mark, the marquee of the of said name. It was a terrible, terrible command. It was so annoying, like all the animated under construction gifs. Do you remember those from the early, early days of the web? Everybody thought they were the coolest thing ever, and yeah, they're just like, might as well be blinking eyesores. There's a little trick that includes code to disable the break key, and there's another trick that causes system reset to act like a cold start, uh, erasing all the RAM. There's a type in that does colors and sounds using the paddles, which is another simple basic program. Was it like one paddle, or one change the hue, and one change the luminance? I don't know, I took my notes a while ago, so I don't quite remember. There's another one that changes sounds, which is similar to the SoundFinder program that I mentioned in the um, feedback section. So I never sort of put this together in my head and um, did the math here, but the Atari looks like it can, it can generate 256 different notes with eight distortion values, so that means 2048 unique sounds. I think some of the distortion values are actually the same, so there might actually be fewer sort of unique sounds that it can generate. Although I guess, you know, some of the distortion factors include some noise, so it's really not, um, it's not like 2048 unique tones, but I guess there are 2048, or, well, fewer sounds that can be processed. But then, of course, you have multiple voices, and you can mix them all together. There's a little nine-line basic type-in to talk to a modem. There's another little type-in that uh, talks about character generation on the Atari, sort of like a small primer on the redefining the character sets, and we'll talk more about that in the game review. There's a little thing called the Atari Hall of Fame where that, I guess they're going to sort of like identify things that are, that are really noteworthy about the Ataris. And they talk about Eridus, which is... I think I've probably mentioned Eridus in every single episode. It's this sort of cassette-based um, magazine. But they talk about Eridus 1 and 2, and still, I I've, still have not found a reference to Eridus 3. So I'm wondering if this is the end of Eridus. There's a small review of the Atari Music Composer, which... Um, we talked a little bit more about last episode. There's a request to send in scores, comments, and strategies for Star Raiders. That's still, that's a great, still a great game. And even, what, more than a year on in its release, there's still articles and everything, uh, still excitement about this game. There's a hardware article about the, using the printer through joystick ports. And it's pretty technical. So it's how you wire up a cable using joystick ports 3 and 4, and then using the PIA chip to talk to it, because it controls the I.O. You can set a register inside the PIA to control whether it's used as input or output, and then this requires a software driver as well, because you're not using the standard P colon driver. So the way this article works, it, it talks about you have five bits to work with on each joystick port, and the, including the fire button. So I guess it uses the one fire button to in, in, have a busy indicator, and somehow he doesn't use the other trigger button. But he st instead uses one of the other data bits as a strobe, so he's only getting 7-bit characters out of it. 
There's software for this custom printer driver using the IOCB, the IO control blocks, which I vaguely remember. I'll have to do more research on that. And maybe, um, maybe Wade on the um, Inverse Itasky podcast will talk more about that kind of stuff, printer drivers and things. So yeah, so you change the built-in P colon device to point to this code, which then can uh, send your stuff that you send to the printer out through the joystick ports to your printer. And he talks about how to survive the system reset by hooking into the cassette or the disk vectors. So you point to the new code in that vector, which is in page zero, and then you save that that old location. So then your code can then point back to the disk or cassette vector so that you don't lose all the operating system routines. Looking at the creative computing, it's uh, volume seven, number two for February 1981. The cover is an Apple II with a bunch of brick chimneys so I must be missing a metaphor. Inside, there's a VisiCalc ad with equal representation for the PET, the 8-bits, and the Apple II. So we still see that the 8-bits haven't been marginalized yet. So for these magazines that cover multiple um, systems, I'm pretty much just looking for Atari references and covering those articles, unless there's some something that really sticks out in my interest. And so there's an article about music editors across the various machines. So there's this big table comparing all these music editors there's you know different platforms and there's a bunch of programs and there's so there's five pages of grids that list all these programs you know their features what they can do how many and it kind of you know it's dependent on the the system itself because each each computer system has different musical capabilities the Atari of course being the best you know as as it is there's an ad for CompuServe where if you buy a Telelink cartridge you'll get a free hour there's another ad for a a tiny C which you know I guess I'd of course, the C language was available at this point because it was developed in the mid '70s, I guess, at Bell Labs. Kernigan and Ritchie, the famous KNRC. So it's just interesting to see that C was available outside of the mini computer realm and outside of Unix. There's a, a nice web page about the C language development history that I'll include in the show notes. One of the few C dialects ever available for the 8-bit was uh, called Deep Blue C which, as it turns out, is interpreted. So I'm not sure that there was ever a C compiler for the 8-bits. Or, well, back then. Certainly there there are plenty of C cross-compilers now, like the CC65 is the big one here in the, in the modern era. Action wasn't available yet. So in high-level languages, I think you were limited to pretty much basic. And what? Because, yeah, the Atari never formally released their Pascal. They did. They eventually did it through APX, but that was kind of a hodgepodge release that wasn't terribly useful. So basically, serious programming, you were doing assembly language or fourth. I guess fourth was the other, was the big sort of high-level language at the time on the Ataris. The Outpost Atari this month is all about the inner workings of the Atari. So there's information on the memory map and the shadow locations in RAM of, you know, the Antic chip, the CTIA, how to reference player missile collisions and stuff. This is still in the time where Dairy Atari and, you know, mapping the Atari, some of the other real big internal um, references for the Atari aren't available, so people were really dependent on these magazines to give them some insight as to how to program and do these more advanced features. Still, I hate to keep beating up on this dead horse, but wow, did Atari make a bad decision keeping that stuff in-house. Now we'll introduce a new magazine to the coverage, Softside Magazine. This is Softside Volume 3, Number 5, uh, February 81. So as I mentioned in the intro to the podcast, I didn't read this magazine back then. I really wasn't aware of it, even then to my memory now, or I wasn't aware of it today. But Kevin said it was a, a significant magazine, so I thought I'd start taking a look at it. The magazine itself was started in October of 1978 by Roger Robitaille out of Milford, New Hampshire. It called itself the basic software magazine, meaning the basic language, not as simplistic software. It started mostly as the TRS-80 and then added Apple II coverage in early 80, and the first reference to the Atari was in August of 1980. It was published until February of 84, so it's now February of 81, so there's, what, three more years. And, you know, when I got into the Ataris in 83... There was less than a year left of this magazine. So maybe that's why I just wasn't aware of it, because by the time I really got into reading more of the magazines, this was already gone. So the cover is a mining cabin on a hillside, and the cover price is two bucks fifty cents. There are lots of ads in this magazine for something called TSE Hardside, or as I found it, the Software Exchange, which is both a publishing arm and a distribution sales channel. 
for uh, Softside Magazine. So they published their own stuff and third-party stuff. And I didn't, I didn't do a count, but probably 90% of the ads in this magazine were from the software exchange. There's an article on 3D computer graphics that's a, apparently a series of articles, and this is the, th- the third in the series on rotation. They include some basic programs to do it, but this is not Atari-specific. The three Atari-specific articles in the magazine are type-in games. The first one is mini-golf, where it uses, I think, graphics mode three? It looks like it's graphics mode, or basic graphics mode four, serantic mode nine. So it's kind of a low-resolution thing, and there's only... It it draws it on the screen, so it draws your little, you know, mini-golf holes. But you only get 16 positions to move your your angle. So it's just really not... It's not... Detail. It doesn't give you enough angles to really get the shots going very well, so I didn't really find this that much fun. The next typing game is called Minor, and it's for multiple platforms, but there's an Atari version. And it's a sort of a very dated-looking text-based game. Well, it's, it's intended to be graphical, but it uses text characters and not redefined text characters. Or anything. So it's just a regular graphic zero, but they use you know different symbols to represent different things. And I found it very dated. Their third type-in was called Changing Hearts, which is a actually it's a fun little puzzle game based on a tic-tac-toe board. I think you can only really play this once till you solved it, and then you, it, there's no variation in it. But I didn't solve it. So you, basically there's a light-colored heart and a dark-colored heart in your heart. So the object is to find the combination that'll allow you to turn the entire tic-tac-toe board to the light-colored hearts with the constraint that you can you flip multiple squares at once. Probably not doing a great job of explaining that, but it's it's a fun little puzzle game. There's an article called Out of Sorts, which is a simple sorting overview, and they talk about the bubble sort and the shell sort, and then they mention the sort of faster sorts, like the merge sort and the quick sort. Sorting is a whole another topic that's, uh, you know, there's, whole, there's classes in computer science just talking about sorting. And, you know, to really, to, to sort the fastest, you have to know something about your data, but these general purpose sorts, they can be, you know, optimized fairly well, and then the, the one that's used in practice most nowadays is uh, some class of quick sort. I checked out uh, Knuth's volume three, I think, is all about sorting and searching. So it's, you know, like 14 million pages on sorting and searching. Yeah, they're they're seriously just whole classes devoted to, to sorting. So that's soft side. We'll see how that goes as I continue to look at it. Um, yeah, the description is mostly basic programs. And Kevin in his email said it, you know, the quality really stepped up here after, you know, in a while. So hopefully it'll get sort of more up to the level of, of compute and analog and stuff as, as we go forward. But adding this magazine, I, it's, I gotta think about adding other stuff. I thought about Byte. Byte magazine has these huge, like 500 page issues. And I just, that's just a lot of stuff to try to go through. If I limit it to like searching only for Atari stuff, maybe I'll do that. Byte, I know, does, is important in the Atari community in the sense that Dayre Atari was serialized in Byte starting in uh, September of 81. So I should, certainly by September of 81, I should start covering Byte. I don't know, I might look at it for next episode. We'll see. I know I missed one already, an important one. The January 81 issue of Byte has an intro to the Atari graphics written by Chris Crawford. So anything written by Chris Crawford in a magazine should should be important. So I should have probably covered that. But yeah, I didn't find out about it till now. Another magazine that I might consider covering is Computer Gaming World. This is one that I was aware of, but didn't really... I'm not sure that I read it. I just I don't recall reading it. But it definitely has Atari coverage right from the beginning. Um, it starts, yeah, November 1981, and there's a whole... I, I think the entire run of the magazine is online at uh, cgwmuseum.org. So let's head on to the game review of Jawbreaker. It's the first game that I reviewed that has music, which is cool. But yeah, it's Pac-Man. So thanks for listening. We'll see you in episode six. But seriously, yeah, it's Pac-Man. It is actually such a good port of Pac-Man that Atari sued Sierra Online, and we'll get into more of that later. I, up until, actually up until I went to the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, I had no interest in playing Pac-Man. And then I played this Miss Pac-Man game of my life, and I'm like, huh, I'm kind of interested in Pac-Man now. 
So I did a whole bunch of research on the arcade version of Pac-Man. And the sort of the interesting, I think the interesting part of Pac-Man is not Pac-Man itself, but Miss Pac-Man. And the, because Miss Pac-Man was a hack. It's a hack of Pac-Man designed by this company called General Computer Corporation, which is really initially run out of the dorms at MIT. And so there's a bunch of great articles that I'll link to in the show notes, um, including a lecture from Steve, Steve Golson, where he goes over the history of GCC and the how they hacked Pac-Man, turned it into this game called Crazy Auto, and then got it officially licensed by Bally Midway into Miss Pac-Man. So it's really, really fascinating. And especially if you like stories about, you know, how they got, how they understood the code using stepping through with debuggers. They bought this whole set of this, you know, really high tech debugging hardware where they could step through the CPU code. In the video, he shows this uh, big binder full of the, the, all the source code of Pac-Man printed out and hand annotated you know, with like lines separate, separating subroutines and comments written in a pencil. And it's a really fascinating video. And so I really encourage you to watch it if you have any interest in this sort of programming of or hacking of games. GCC was also responsible for the 7800 development, and they did uh, some cross-licensing with Atari after uh, Atari sued them for their hack of Missile Command. They made a, a hacked version called Super Missile Attack, and they sold these little kits, these little add-on kits for Missile Command that you would actually pull out a ROM chip from the Missile Command board, plug it back into this, like, daughter board, and then plug that daughter board into your missile command cabinet they did it that way to try to avoid being sued and yet they still got sued anyway but they got sued for something that they didn't it didn't anticipate getting sued for but anyway they also through this licensing agreement with atari they developed a couple um arcade games like food fight and quantum and actually gcc is still in business today like they make uh, laser printers back to the atari 8 bits the game jawbreaker was written by john harris and he was somewhat of a famous Atari 8-bit developer at the time. This, you know, 81, we're still, it's still before my time, so I didn't really know of him directly at the time. But reading about it, he was one of the first sort of rock star developers, you know, millionaire kind of software guys for the Atari. He's actually written a bunch of articles on Gamma Sutra about sort of the theory of game design and things. So I'll link to much of those in the show notes. There was another game called uh, Jawbreaker 2 that was... He didn't do it, and it's kind of like... Well, there's a bunch of stories. Okay, so let me back up. There's a book called Hackers by Stephen Levy. It was written in the mid-'80s. I think it stops at 84 or 85. So talking about the hackers of the 50s all the way up to the 8-bit era. And there's a big section devoted to Sierra Online and John Harris in particular. Then I also found an interview with that John Harris did with James Haig, who wrote the ebook Halcyon Days, which is a, over a similar era, you know, 8-bit game authors. So in the book Halcyon Days, John Harris talks about how he felt that Stephen Levy sort of misrepresented his his character, his sort of, you know, his, his personal character in that the book Hackers, which I ended up, I got the ebook and I read it, and I read this section on John Harris in, in, in detail. So the book does sort of paint the picture that John Harris was like pining away for girls and, and just couldn't function socially, you know, sort of the, the stereotypical hacker thing. And in the interview in Halcyon Days, John Harris said that it took him almost a year from the time he took him almost a year to read it. And he, he said he, he said it wasn't as bad as he thought it would be. And, uh, he sort of enjoyed reminiscing over the, some of the technical stuff. But the, while Stephen Levy got the, sort of the technical details right about the game development and the, the technical aspect of Sierra, that he felt that the writing, where he sort of had the big disagreement was how Stephen Levy sort of, well, I'll quote, Levy made it sound like I was a walking ho- hormone, but really I had no desire for casual sex. My desires at the time were focused on finding a girlfriend to share his life experiences with, talk to, and just have fun. Perhaps... It is this major difference from the norm that made it so difficult for Ken Williams and Steve Levy to understand me. Steve Levy knew the truth about all this and about how much it bothered me, but for some reason he didn't either believe it or chose to ignore it and decided to write his own version, which he presumably felt had more journalistic appeal. So, yeah, I mean, there's a bigger topic here of, you know, how a narrative is sort of adjusted to fit which, what the authors thinks will be you know, popular or accepted. Uh, kind of similar to the discussion of, that went on about King of Kong, the movie, how it sort of, you know, veered from a, a, a true documentary about Donkey Kong record attempts into this sort of, you know, battle between Steve Wiebe and Billy Mitchell. And, you know, how the movie was sort of 
they found the movie that they wanted. They found the story they wanted to tell in the editing room rather than being a straight documentary. And to some extent, you know, it's it's a it's a fun movie to watch. But is it all that representative of what went on, or, or you know, how the editing and and uh, what you choose to leave in versus what you leave out changes the story that you actually see on the screen? And to some extent, I mean, so that's essentially what uh, is being applied here: is that you have two versions. You have the the version that was written in, in the book hackers and you have the story that john harris tells about what went on i mean it's hard to know the third party what to believe and so so at the time john harris worked for sierra online and that's the company that released jawbreaker although at the time it was really it was known as online systems and it didn't take the name sierra online till later online systems was founded by ken and roberta williams and it wasn't until 82 where it became sierra online so Roberta Williams was playing text adventures, but then started about thinking about the graphics capabilities of the Apple II, such as they are. But she integrated graphics into a text script to produce the high-res adventures starting in 1980. And it was using like a four-line text screen and then a two-word parser, and then line drawings for the graphics. So some of those actually were released for the Atari 800 starting in 82, but Atari Mania only lists the even numbers for some reason, so 0, 2, 4, and 6. Myself, I know them best, the... Uh, CR Online brand for the Space Quest games. And they had King's Quest and similar type games, Leisure Suit Larry and Police Quest. They went on into the 90s and they talked merger with Brotobund at some, pl- at some point, but never, that never got completed. And hackers, they tell a lot of the history of um, the founding of CR Online until, well, until 84 when the book sort of stops. But it went through different, a couple different CEOs because Ken Williams was the initial guy and then he's, he kind of Attempted to push himself aside by bringing another guy, but he found that he really couldn't do that. So he pushed that other guy back aside and stepped back into the the role. But Ken and Roberta Williams left in the mid-90s, or I guess in 97, and then it was merged with another corporation uh, to create the Seedent Corporation with 40,000 employees. And apparently there was a scandal that developed in 1998, and a former management team had been creating these uh, false business statements. So, as a result, the entertainment division of was sold off, and there's a bunch of groups clo- closed down and reorganized again in the 2000s. The Sierra name was dropped and then re- resurrected and then dropped again. But eventually, the parent company was sold to Activision. And it's uh, it's come back to release some old classics and some new stuff, I guess, all under the Activision banner. But there's like there's still some Sierra stuff in there, I guess, on the uh, stream, Xbox Live, and the PlayStation Network. And sort of, you know, modern gaming things that I have no idea about. So the game itself was distributed on disc and cassette initially, and I couldn't find a manual for it. This would be a good candidate for a main cabinet, because it's only a joystick, um, doesn't use a fire button, and the only special key it uses is start. There's no two-player versions, it's just a one-player game. And so it plays, yeah, just like Pac-Man, so... You control this little set of, I guess, false teeth. These little chomping teeth. Sort of a head-on view of the teeth. They're just moving up and down constantly. Chomp, 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 chomp. And you go around this maze eating the little, they call them candies. Instead of ghosts, they have these little little smiley faces. There's four different smiley face characters. They each do different little animations. One rolls and one kind of spins. And they're different colors and they chase you. And it's the same deal. You eat the eat the candies and if you touch them when they're not in their normal state then you die but if you if you touch them when after you get one of the the big candies then you can eat them and send them back to the little home base where they'll change back into their normal selves and come chase you again the animation is very smooth it is so good that this is that atari actually had the license to pac-man and threatened to sue online systems and there's a big write up about this in the book hackers the story of the development of the game, Jawbreaker, if we're going to go by the book Hackers, and uh, in John Harris's interview with Halcyon Days said the technical stuff is mostly accurate, so we'll, we'll go with it, was that online systems had a sort of Pac-Man clone for the Apple called Gobbler, and they were intending to port that to the Atari to sell as their Pac-Man clone. But that John Harris was such a big fan of the Atari that he was like offended almost to have a sort of bit-by-bit port of an Apple thing come to the Atari, you know, with more powerful graphics on the Atari than the Apple could ever hope to do. 
So John Harris said, oh, well, I'll write, the, I'll write Pac-Man. So I wrote, wrote one, and apparently the version was so good that it was a virtual clone of the arcade game. At this point, the copyright stuff still hadn't been settled out as to what can be copyrighted and what can't. But Atari had started to send out these notices sort of in, in advance of other companies publishing ports to say that it is illegal for somebody to sort of copy the spirit of the game in order to advance their own profits on the work that Atari did to make this style of game popular. So Atari had spent a lot of money to get the rights to the VCS version of Pac-Man, and they Ken Williams and Sierra saw how close that John Harris's version was on the 8-bit to the actual arcade Pac-Man. So the first thing that John Harris did to fix this when said that, well, you can't, you know, it looks too much like Pac-Man, was apparently he gave the ghosts little mustaches and sunglasses. But that wasn't that wasn't quite enough to distance themselves from Atari. So I guess they talked to the lawyers, and he said that the only thing that Atari really owned was the image of the character itself and not the gameplay mechanic. So the suggestion was that the ghosts be replaced by happy faces, the power or the pellets replaced by candies, or the Saiyan hackers replaced by lifesavers, and that instead of Pac-Man you have this set of yellow false teeth. So anytime the false teeth get get um, caught by the smiley faces, the little teeth fall out. And then when you complete a level in a sort of the in-between level animation, a big toothbrush comes over and brushes your teeth. So the Sierra Online lawyers said that this would be enough to distance themselves from the Atari copyrights, and so they, they went ahead with the game. Apparently, somewhere during the development process of, the, of Jawbreaker, while the character still looked like Pac-Man, the, a version got out. Uh, I, in Hackers, they say that, that John Harris would, would be willing to show uh, versions of games to people with when they asked. So apparently one of those versions got out, got back to Atari, and Atari started asking around as to who wrote the program, and eventually they found out it was John Harris. So the, Atari offered them offered him to f- finish the game for Atari, but he opted to stick with CR Online because he felt that Atari, because they didn't give programmers credit, he would not be satisfied with that. And so he went on to make the changes and to publish it as Jawbreaker through uh, Online. It was a huge hit for online systems, and it was really the first third-party game that approached the capabilities of the of the software that Atari was developing at the time. Because Atari was so reticent to give out documentation, you know, everybody had to discover things on their own unless you worked for Atari. And this was the first one to sort of approach the first-party commercial quality that had been exhibited by Atari. Atari, for its part, thought that it was such a good copy of Pac-Man that it was infringing on the copyrights because nobody would be willing to buy Atari's version of Pac-Man because this one was so good. Atari kept pressuring online to sell Jawbreaker to them and to stop marketing Jawbreaker through online systems. So I guess they had a big meeting at Atari where Ken Williams and met with Fred Thorlin and John Harris apparently was supposed to be there but missed his flight and uh, got there as the meeting ended. Apparently the argument got pretty heated between the lawyers and Ken Williams, but that Ken Williams said that he couldn't agree to the deal that Atari was offering and that it best be left to a judge to figure out who was really infringing on a copyright, if anybody. So Atari, I guess Atari offered like a lowball 5% royalty figure, so they, they just decided to let Atari sue them and then see what happened then. In some typical sort of lawyering shenanigans that Atari tried to pull it, they uh, wanted to confiscate all the all the machines that possibly had a copy of, like, they wanted to issue an injunction to, to prevent Jawbreaker from being distributed, which meant that they had to hide all their Atari equipment at the company. I guess that everything was up in the air enough that they were wondering if the company might be shut down during the injunction. At the time when all this was going on, John Harris was working on another sort of maze game for the Atari called Mouse Attack. There was an injunction hearing, and John Harris was deposed. Listen to me, like, throwing these legal terms like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know. He was, he, they brought him up for questioning. And um, I guess one of the arguments that Atari had was that he may have used some code from Pac-Man itself, but it was, it was made clear that it wasn't because he didn't keep any old copies of his source code. He's one of these guys that was, that could keep a lot of stuff in his head, apparently. And 
and you know didn't write anything down so he didn't have any development notes he just wrote stuff from scratch as he as he developed it so atari couldn't prove that he'd seen the old version of pac-man code and when they compared the pac-man source code to uh, to the jawbreaker source code it wasn't not it was totally different it was there's nothing that could have been construed as being copied from atari's code so then atari tried to say well that because this game looks so much like pac-man that the maze in fact was a, admittedly a clone of the pac-man maze that they therefore had the right to sue because it was it was a copy online's lawyers suggested that it was just the idea of pac-man that was copied and not pac-man itself because the graphics were changed. The graphics didn't look like Pac-Man. And the law said that ideas are not copyrightable. Atari was trying to argue that because it looked like Pac-Man and played like Pac-Man, it was the same game. But the judge said that because he could tell the difference between the two games, that it was different enough that or he refused to in- issue the injunction against online systems and allowed the uh, online to continue marketing Jawbreaker. But apparently the Ken Williams was so worried about the future that he ended up settling with Atari before the whole thing came to trial. When I was playing the game, I found different versions, and I'm wondering if this is the effect of that of that uh, injunction, because I found one that has a maze that does look a lot like Pac-Man. The one they played on the Atari Age High Score Club has a totally different maze, so I'm wondering if this is like pre- and post-injunction um, era. I couldn't find any more information about it. And then it looked on the Atari Age High Score Club that that the maze changed as you went high enough, but I could never get high enough to figure it out if that was actually the case. So I don't know if the maze changes like Miss Pac-Man or if it stays constant like Pac-Man. The Atari Age version, the smiley faces are a lot faster than the than the uh, Atari Mania version. So it's a much tougher game that they played for the Atari Age High Score Club. So I guess the point is, is if you like Pac-Man, you'll like this game. I found the Smiley faces to be um, much less predictable than well in Pac-Man they're I guess totally predictable they're t- deterministic even in Miss Pac-Man they're mildly predictable well they had they do have some randomization some randomization in there but I found these this was a much harder game so some technical stuff about this game this is a graphics mode zero game so it's really a text it's a text game and they're using artifacting to generate the colors of the maze the interesting thing about artifacting is I remember it appearing differently than it appears in the emulators on real hardware, and it's I'm so I gotta get my real hardware working because this <laughs> this would be good to check. But on real hardware, I remember that if two and so we're talking about graphics mode zero, which uses the high res pixels, so that's the 320 by uh, 192 resolution. But in graphics zero, of course, there are eight by eight pixel chunks for each character. I remember that if two pixels were adjacent, regardless of whether it was like pixel 0 and pixel 1 or pixel 1 and pixel 2 if two were adjacent then it was white and it's only if you get a pixel by itself it depended on the even or odd column to give you the color some emulators do a better job at rendering artifacting than others and I sort of remember that any two or more pixels adjacent to each other would be white regardless of which columns the pixels were in but it seems to be handled differently on different emulators uh, Altera with its like high level artifacting mode seems to render it the best and emulators based on the uh, Atari 800 open source core seem to have an issue where the player object passing next to artifacted colors turns them back into the into the monochrome pixels. So I, I don't know, it's a bit of an odd effect. So because this is just a graphics zero game, they just redefine some character sets to equal the maze walls and you know make the little lifesaver circles. Redefining character sets were a popular thing to do in term you know to create games, and there were a bunch of editors that helped make the new characters. Bill Kendrick's got one that he's got on his website that I'll link to. It's actually written in basic, and you run it on your Atari emulator or real hardware. Bill Kendrick's got also, he's also got a fun game that I played a little bit. I'm going to show to my kids. It's a garbage truck game where you, you drive up to these little garbage cans and you have little grabbers and you lift them up and dump them in the back of the garbage truck. It's called Go Go Garbage Truck. I'll link to that as well in the show notes. So yeah, I don't remember this game growing up. I don't remember having it. I think by the time I was around there, we had the, I think I saw the 5200 port of Pac-Man ported back to the Atari 8-bits. I think that was the Pac-Man game. But, you know, back then I wasn't really a fan of Pac-Man, so I don't think I really would have seeked out this game. But most people point to this as the first third-party game to really live up to the quality that Atari itself was producing. I read this in several places, but I really could only find a reference in the uh, January-February 82 issue of Computer Gaming World. And that's really what 
kind of prompted me to think that maybe I should include Computer Gaming World in the list of magazines that I cover for this podcast. So my high score on this game was 79.80, and I only got through three board, two boards. But now I'm wondering, because I was playing the easier version, so after I found the Atari Age High Score Club version, I didn't get nearly that far, because the smiling faces were so much faster. So the Atari, the High Score Club did this game way back on the f- very first season, um, round 23, Atari Age user Shannon got 33,320 on that very difficult version. So that is super impressive. Well, you know, really, all this, all the scores on the Atari high, Atari Age High Score Club are really impressive compared to what I could do. There's a 2600 version of Jawbreaker that's very different, and John Harris wrote this as well. And you can read it. I'll include a link for the uh, episode in, in Ferg's 2600 Game by Game podcast. But it's a very different game because you go left to right, and there's these sort of slidey wall things that have holes in them, and you, so you can go down to a lower level or a higher level only when the little hole in the sliding wall appears where you are, and then the smiley faces go around the outside and try to trap you. It's a fun game. It's very different, though. And I guess John Harris wrote it this way because he wanted to use the capabilities of the 2600 rather than try to force the 2600 to do something it's not good at. So that's going to be it for this episode. I had some real podcast block going on for this episode. I don't know why. I just I couldn't get into this game, really, even though, even despite the fact that it's a really quality game... And I also got interested in Miss Pac-Man and after playing it at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. So, I don't know, I'm just kind of glad to be through this one. Next episode, I think, is going to be fun because we are going to stomp all over the Apple II. Yes, we are. Next episode is going to be a game called Sabotage, which was never released for the Atari, and yet it's on the Atari 8-bit systems. And this next episode is going to give definitive proof why the Atari is a superior machine to the Apple II. So I hope all you Apple II users tune in and we'll get converted, and all of a sudden you'll decide, hey, we need to have an Atari Fest. Heck with this Kansas Fest thing. We're going to change it to all Atari all the time. So yep, I encourage all you Apple II guys to listen next episode. I'm a proud member of the Throwback Network. Check out all the retro-themed podcasts at throwbacknetwork.net. You can always contact me via email at feedback at playermissile.com. Or on Twitter, I'm at Atari8BitGames. So instead of sap music this time, I'm going to close the podcast here with some audio of me walking around the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. So I will see you next time for Episode 6, Discussing Sabotage, and we'll look at the magazines for March of 1981. So the audio here is from a YouTube video that I'll include a link to of me walking around the arcade. And I sort of halfway through realized that, hmm... I probably should kind of talk about the games I'm walking by. So I edited out a bunch of the stuff where I'm just kind of walking and not saying a lot. But there's, you know, some arcade ambience. And uh, you'll see how much of a fan I am of, the, of a particular band. There'll be a bonus question there at some point in some trivia contest. So make sure you listen and figure out which band and song I'm talking about. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next episode. Oh, here's the Talking Kong Pauline edition. Console area with no Atari 8 bit stuff. Ooh, Rampart played that, that's really hard. Some of the newer games, which I don't really care about. Oh, Rush. Rush makes everything better. Oh, Major Havoc, that was fun. I never played that before. Grab Tower, very hard. Like the vector side. Oh, and all this cab race section. 
was really rocky, it wasn't very stable. We got some more of the classic stuff. There's Tron. I got to number six on Tron. We'll see where I am today. Oh, it looks like they reset the machines. So I could get the high score. I got destroyed at a Robotron. Oh, there's a multi Williams. And there's a 60 and 1 over here. Yeah, the 60 and 1. I played Bubbles for the first time. Got the high score and I immediately changed it some, to some other uh, game. So I'll hopefully permanently have the high score on Bubbles, even though it was not a great game. Oh, uh, the Venture is broken, which is too bad because I haven't seen that one in years and years. That was one of the first games I remember. 